0: Hello, this is David Beeson with chapter 21 of A History of England, where we're going to be looking at round two of the English Civil War and the fine death of a deluded king. After the First English Civil War, a number of Scots Presbyterians began to worry about whether the powerful force emerging in England, the New Model Army, might not be an even more serious threat to them than the king. Let's not forget that Presbyterians knew that they had things right about man's relationship to God, and they were keen to make sure that everyone freely adopted the same view as theirs, even if they had to force them to. The New Model Army, as we've seen, had a rather broader view of religious freedom, and wanted people to be able to choose freely which sect they belonged to. Which Protestant sect? That kind of choice wasn't attractive to Presbyterians, who felt they'd already made Scotland's choice and saw no reason to review it. Nothing illustrates the depths of their differences better than an extract of a letter of Cromwell's to the Scots Presbyterians. The second sentence is a much-quoted principle of Quaker's even today. "'Is it therefore infallibly agreeable to the word of God all that you say? "'I beseech you in the bowels of Christ,' Think it possible you may be mistaken. Admitting you might be wrong is the starting point of tolerance of divergence, and Puritans such as the Presbyterians had little time for divergence. It got to the point where a large number of Scots decided it would be best to open negotiations with Charles. They offered him the softest of soft terms for their support, even asking for just three years of strict Presbyterian control in Scotland, leaving open the possibility of new arrangements afterwards. Let's just remind ourselves of the tortuous way the two sides got there. Charles had gone to war with Scots Presbyterians. Badly beaten by them once, and then a second time when the Scots entered into an alliance with the English Parliamentary Forces, he had decided he'd rather surrender to the Scots than to Parliament. But they handed him over to Parliament anyway you could scarcely be blamed for thinking that this was hardly a track record likely to foster trust or warm feelings between the King and the Scots Presbyterians. Despite all that, the next big idea was for those same Presbyterians to go into alliance with the King, take on the English Parliament with him and help him recover his power. Never let it be said that there's anything clear about loyalties in a civil war. Charles was always eager for what he saw as the main chance. So he escaped from captivity and headed north to join yet another Scottish army invading England. From there, he called on Royalists everywhere to rise in his support. Back in Putney, the army's grandees were busily debating with the levellers about what rights a free Englishman could expect to enjoy. The levellers, you'll remember, wanted rather more, while the grandees wanted to keep things within what they saw as reasonable limits. But then the news arrived. The king had raised his standard, the show was back on the road, there was fighting to be done. The debates broke up and men hurried back to their units. Round two was underway. Talk of freedom would just have to wait. It's hard not to imagine the Grandees feeling just a trace of relief over that. As for Charles and his supporters, they'd been sadly misled by uprisings in England the previous year. They thought that the disturbances had been motivated by support for the King. Unfortunately, the problem was really dissatisfaction with Presbyterian measures, such as the abolition of holidays. Christmas, the longest holiday, and at a time of year when people most needed one, was especially missed. Incidentally, the cancellation of the holidays is a measure often attributed to Cromwell. That's certainly what I was taught as a school kid. But in reality, it wasn't down to him, it was the Presbyterians in Parliament. At any rate, the troubles hadn't been driven by any great upswelling of affection for the king. At the time, there wasn't much support for him. In fact, royalist strength in England was so limited that Thomas Fairfax and a detachment of the army crushed it quickly. Meanwhile, Cromwell took a force into Wales, where he swiftly dealt with the threat from there, which even included former parliamentary soldiers who'd gone over to the King's side. Next, he turned northwards and won a conclusive victory over a Scots force twice the size of his, which in passing rather justifies the fears many felt in Scotland, about the threat the new model army represented. With Parliament winning victories in England, Wales and Scotland, the Second Civil War was over for Charles. Bitter fighting continued in Ireland, as we shall see in the next episode, but his fate was decided in Britain, and he'd been beaten again. Previously, the parliamentarians had shown some mercy towards beaten soldiers. Now this disappeared, particularly towards men who'd changed sides. The number of executions soared, as did mistreatment of surviving prisoners. No more Mr Nice Guy, seemed to be the watchword, from men sick of having to fight a war again after having already won it once. That resentment also coloured their thinking on what to do with a king once they'd beaten him for the second time. I mean, two defeats. Since everyone knew that Providence made victors, didn't this rather mean that Charles, chosen of God or not, had rather exhausted divine patience? Indeed, wasn't God now clearly on Parliament's side? There was another problem. The new model army had been negotiating in good faith with Charles. Like most people, it wanted the monarchy to continue. But Charles had shown that he regarded no agreement as binding on him. He'd signed documents committing himself to peace. But go on preparing for war on the quiet. He apparently failed to understand that if you break agreements, people become reluctant to make any with you. The leaders of the victorious side in the Civil War lost patience with Charles. However painful it was, they decided that he simply had to go. Assassination was the traditional method of getting rid of inconvenient monarchs like Edward II and Richard II, and the English are nothing if not traditionalists. The army's leaders, however, were parliamentarians, which meant they were bureaucrats and lawyers. They respected the law with a capital L. It had to be obeyed, or at least appear to be obeyed. So they wanted a show trial. For that, they needed parliamentary authority. Sadly, even after all that had happened, there was no majority in either parliament or the country for doing away with the king. The solution was the same as adopted before and since by those purists, whether right or left wing, who just know they have a monopoly on the truth, especially if, conveniently, they have an army at their disposal. They preserve the appearance of legality while using force to get their way. Colonel Thomas Pride of the new model army stationed himself at the entrance to Parliament and simply ejected MPs whose support couldn't be counted on. There's a term for using the army to eliminate political opposition. It's called a military coup, and that's what this was. Just as the Scots had been right to be worried about the new model army, so it was clear that Parliament had been justified in having the same concerns. The coup was directed at a Parliament that had lasted eight years and had come to be called the Long Parliament. After Pride's purge, it was known as The Rump Parliament. It sounds insulting, and in most people's mouths, it was. But the Rump did what the army wanted. It voted to put the king on trial. For treason towards the people, by waging unjust war on it. English courts, however, dispensed the monarch's justice. How could they enforce justice against the monarch? Charles, like most people, couldn't see what authority the court had to try him. The Lord President of the Court, John Bradshaw, explained to him, you are, though you will not understand it, to find that you are before a court of justice. The King replied, well, sir, I find I am before a power. Charles was right. All the army had was power. It wanted him dead, but by legal process, though no such process existed so the court just made up the law as it went along. Not everyone in the army agreed with what was happening. Its commanding general, Thomas Fairfax, for instance, simply refused to have anything to do with the trial. His wife attended in disguise and shouted protests from the public gallery. For her pains, she was even threatened at one point by a soldier who aimed his gun at her. There was only one way a treason trial could end in those days. No one, including Charles, can have been surprised when the court convicted him and sentenced him to death. By then he was no longer trying to save himself, merely working to die an exemplary martyr's death. Englishmen loved the story that, on the day of his execution, Charles wore two shirts, so he wouldn't shiver and be thought to have trembled. He had to wait four hours to die. There was one more measure the rump Parliament had to adopt – a law denying that Charles's heir would inherit the throne as soon as his father was dead, as was customary. Only after it passed could he be beheaded. He won his last bet, though. There was an upswelling of support for him after what many saw as his martyr's death. It was the smartest trick he ever pulled off. If only he'd been that clever in life and found an intelligent compromise with Parliament. Instead, he'd been too wily to be straightforward, too devious to honour his deals, too blind to know when he was beaten. He might have saved a lot of lives, including his own, had he behaved more wisely. Charles's death marked Parliament's complete victory over him, but it didn't lead to lasting peace. That's something we can explore in the next episode. Thanks for listening to this one.